If you get a file that says this looks like there's a virus in it, be careful with what you're uploading. So if you take something that is a confidential memo that flagged your antivirus, you may want to figure out how to look at that somewhere differently rather than putting that up in virus total. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we decided to look back on deepfakes, the face-swapping video technology that some believed could destroy democracy. Starting in 2019, as several countries barreled towards their respective elections, deepfakes became the lead suspect for potential disinformation. Voters in the United Kingdom that year saw a deepfake of now Prime Minister Boris Johnson endorsing his opponent. A year later, voters in the U.S. saw a deepfake of Republican House Representative Matt Gates endorsing Democrat Joe Biden. And I promise, what I am about to say about the Matt Gates deepfake is not political. It looked real bad. Even the term deepfake is generous when describing this PlayStation 2-looking Pixar's 1998 A Bug's Life resembling a project. In both the Boris Johnson and Matt Gates videos, the deepfakes were experiments meant to show what could happen if a bad actor harnessed deepfake technology. They were warnings. But then... The elections came and went, and there was no deepfake chaos or confusion. So, what happened? Well, deepfake creators had their own plans. One savvy digital artist relied on the technology to basically make a VFX job reel, showcasing a pretty convincing deepfake of Tom Cruise. One motorcycle enthusiast revealed that he used the popular face app tool to pose as a woman. And many, many, many others just made porn. We also reported on NetScout's review of last year's malicious internet activity. Amidst the pandemic, threat actors ramped up their brute force attacks, and they broke multiple records in deploying distributed denial-of-service or DDoS attacks. Just by the numbers, 2020 saw the most DDoS attacks launched in a single month at 929,000, the most DDoS attacks in a single year, at more than 10 million, and monthly DDoS attack numbers that regularly exceeded 2019 averages by 100,000 to 150,000 attacks. Attack frequency spiked by 20% year over year, and by 22% in the last six months of 2020. With these eye-popping numbers, you might wonder how to protect your organization from such an attack. There are many providers out there, and obviously you should choose one that can protect your network from breaches during an attack, but you should also prioritize your user's experience. Meaningful DDoS protection should allow your users to still use your systems as normally as possible, even during an attack. But knowing how life works, you'll probably shell out some budget on a new DDoS protection provider, and next year, DDoS attacks will drop to record lows. It's the cybersecurity equivalent of washing your car a day before it rains. Finally, before our main story, a note. Our audio settings were mismatched during the interview, so expect a difference. 
Our main story today concerns VirusTotal, or more accurately, our main story today uses VirusTotal as an entry point to a larger issue for small to medium-sized businesses that test their cybersecurity platforms through imperfect means. What do I mean? <laughs> All right. So, VirusTotal is an enormously popular online service that lets users check more than 70 antivirus scanners against malware samples, and it lets users search for similar malware based on the samples they submit. So, have a piece of malware you're analyzing but can't identify. Searching its import hash on VirusTotal could tell you about that malware and similar variants. Or maybe you want to check which antivirus tools detect that malware. VirusTotal helps with that. A second use for VirusTotal deserves attention too, and it is the paid subscription service called VirusTotal Intelligence. VirusTotal Intelligence lets users download malware samples directly from VirusTotal, which they can then detonate in their own environments. And this practice, it turns out, is pretty popular. As we found out at Malwarebytes in our latest report, the SMB Cybersecurity Trust and Confidence Report 2021, a full 83% of small to medium-sized businesses tested their endpoint protection software in the past 12 months, and 58% did that testing by using VirusTotal possibly by downloading samples from VirusTotal Intelligence and scanning those samples with their own cybersecurity software. This is proactive work. It's good. It shows that small to medium-sized businesses are evaluating the purchases that are meant to protect their businesses from cyber attacks. However, all of the evaluation methods that folks told us about in our survey are far from perfect. In fact, they might lead to some uninformed conclusions. And we can't forget about the businesses that told us they test nothing. Again, endpoint protection is supposed to do just that, protect endpoints. What good is evaluating it if the evaluations can miss something? This dilemma is everywhere for small to medium-sized businesses. They buy an endpoint protection tool, they roll it out, they might test it, and sometimes they're left to gauge the effectiveness by whether or not something goes wrong, at which point it's already too late. Today, to help us understand this dilemma, why it happens, and how businesses can break free from the virus total silo, we're speaking with John Donovan, Chief Information Security Officer for Malwarebytes. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, David. Thanks for having me back. Really uh, glad to be part of the conversation today. Always happy to have you back. Let's get right into it. So I opened the show talking a lot about VirusTotal, but the real issue here is that small to medium-sized businesses, as we learned, are testing the effectiveness of their endpoint protection tools in imperfect ways. Can you tell me more about how they're doing that testing? So what other methods are they trying out? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great point. And I, I think, you know, especially when you talk about kind of the whole spectrum of companies, you know, there's different things that, you know, a large company would do that has a big security team versus a small medium business kind of, you know, that might be has a small security team or has 
like an IT director and a small team that's maybe doing both IT and security. So I think that's part of the whole conversation we should have today. Using tools like VirusTotal and others are definitely ones that people have been using more so. And I know we'll get into that some more. Some of the other ways to do this is if you have the expertise on your team inside to do some amount of manual testing, manual pen testing, or to hire an external expert to do that penetration testing or to do kind of an evaluation of what you got. One of the, the other tools that are out there, there, there are tools like G2, G2 Crowd, the analyst reports that you could get from someone like Gartner, but of course those cost. And if you're a small, medium business, that's probably not in your budget. One of the, the great ways to do it, I think, too, is once you have your defenses set up, it's to use some type of breach and attack simulation software. And we've seen kind of a rise of these. Don't want to get into any specific vendors or things like that right now. But you know, some of them are based on open and good standards like the MITRE attack framework. And so you know, that's one of the things, for instance, that endpoint protection software companies like ourselves are, are doing our own testing against. But you know, when you get into it, what is your actual deployment? So I think you, know, you want to kind of use a combination of tools and people. You definitely need to have kind of you know, humans in the mix. I wanted to go into some of the things that you mentioned right there, particularly this breach and attack simulation software. We found from our report, right, that uh, actually 50% of our respondents use that method. They, they used breach and attack simulation software. And 35% also hired an outside vendor to test their endpoint security, which is something you mentioned there, pen testing. What are the immediate issues you see for some of these methods, right? So what could small to medium-sized businesses be missing when they, for instance, like I said, hire an outside vendor for pen testing? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a couple of things there. You know, it's it's always good to use outside experts. And you know, in some cases, especially if you're a small, medium business, you may have like a contract with a, a managed services provider that sets up your laptops for you, other things like that. They may have services that, you know, you could use around that. You know, Malwarebytes, I know we have tools that our managed service security customers use to then help their customers with our tools. But the tricky thing is those pen tests generally are very expensive and are likely maybe limited in scope. So for instance, we do both internal testing and then third-party pen tests for any of our products that are out there and things that are kind of internet facing. But you know, you can't necessarily pen test every single thing you've got, right? That's again comes down to a human labor scheduling and, and cost issue. For the next one, now if you look at tooling, so like I know we'll get back to virus total, but if we talk about kind of the breach and attack simulation software, similar thing, you know, so yeah, it's kind of like if you know your back door is unlocked and that your window's broken, you may want to fix that first before you have someone come by and you know jiggle the doorknob for you or something <laughs> like that. Whether that's a person yeah. or like a service you yeah. set up. And so the breach and attack simulation software, that's that's kind of what those things do. I think it should be part of any security program once you kind of get to that right level of maturity. Is there a sort of standard for what that maturity looks like for a small to medium-sized business, right? Because I assume it's every business has to determine for itself what maturity is, but how do they figure that out? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those big challenges. And, and some of this comes down to kind of some of the fundamental things around 
uh, security programs, it's all really around risk. And so, you know, what are you looking to protect? You want to make sure that you've got the appropriate countermeasures, controls, and protections in place for that. A lot of this, I would say, is you should start with the basics, which is you make sure that your systems are patched up to date. And I know that's a whole other podcast we can get back into there again. But, you know, then you need to do some amount of, especially for anything that's critical to your business. I was a little surprised, actually, to see in the report that the breach attack simulation software usage was higher than the pen testing. But <laughs> maybe I need to go back and look at what was included in that breach attack simulation because, you know, there's some great software out there, but it's not free either, right? And so in both yeah. cases, it's trying to find what's the right visibility to understand your risk to have the right controls in place. And I think that's probably part of what we're seeing back from this report, which is, you know, people are just looking at where do I start? You know, and I think that's that's one of the things that, you know, especially, you know, I talk with my peers, CISOs at other companies. Some of them are at very big companies. Some of them are, you know, at small places. They may be the first person starting a, a security team and program. And unfortunately, there isn't kind of a great out-of-the-box answer. There's a number of standards around there, but I think it really does have to come back to you need to look at your business first, map the risks so that you have the right security controls in place to address those. Yeah, I like what you said there about that folks are just trying to find out where to start. You know, where where do I take on this very large task, this really big goal? And I think that that might explain also why we see so many folks relying on VirusTotal as well, because maybe it's a name they recognize. It's probably the service they've been using for years, whatever company they were at. And also, it sounds like even though it costs money, it probably costs less money than breach and attack simulation software or hiring an outside vendor. And so I wanted to move back to VirusTotal there and ask, you know, what could small to medium-sized businesses be missing when they then rely on VirusTotal to test their own endpoint protection? It'd be interesting if we could tease out, you know, especially since there was such a high amount of kind of reporting that people were using VirusTotal, how much we're using kind of the paid components versus how much we're using the free components. One of the great advantages I have here working at Malwarebytes is we've got a great you know, research team and, you know, they're always looking at kind of how to help our engineering teams improve our products. So, you know, we use VirusTotal and a bunch of other backend systems. There are other ones that are out there. You can do some research around VirusTotal is the one that people know the most about. And since it's free, I think that's one of the, you know, for the basic uses, that's one of the ways that people go and make sure to go use it. The interesting thing there around this without kind of getting into the politics of testing too much is that how does VirusTotal work? Well, companies like Malwarebytes send a version of our engine there to scan samples that are submitted. And, you know, so you got to make sure that those are up to date. You also have to realize that the score you'll get from VirusTotal or other things on online is going to be different potentially than your environment, right? And so I think depending on how they're using it, it really comes down to, again, you want to make sure that you are testing your security controls for your company in the way that it is. And I think if you don't have kind of the budget or the staffing around some of the security stuff there, you may want to make sure you've got an outside expert helping you, whichever tool you're using. Something you said that I can't help but be extremely interested in is that you said you didn't want to get too far into the politics of testing. What did you mean there? Let's understand that a little bit better. Definitely, David. And let's start with kind of some of the traditional stuff, whether it's security software or not. You know, you've got analysts who are experts in the field, uh, companies like Gartner, who put out their Magic Quadrant reports and things like that. And generally, although I'll probably run into a little trouble from our marketing folks or 
if Gardner comes back around on this, is there's always a question and aspect of pay to play, right? Because as a vendor, you know, you are consulting with the folks that are generating reports in the area. And there's supposed to be kind of a bridge between those areas, but that's the first area, I would say. So, you know, whether it's Gartner or some of Forrester or some of those other ones, that's why I was kind of pointing back to the G2 crowd, because it's kind of looking at your peers and crowdsourcing. That's an interesting way to kind of look at it. Now, looking at the technical testing, and, you know, I mentioned MITRE, they do testing of endpoint products. Depending on how the tests are set up, some products are going to do better or worse than others. Likewise, in VirusTotal, so which version of the engine is running there? Is it the most recent one from all of the endpoint protection companies that are there? Is it configured in the way that is the real world you know, environment? And so you know, that, that's what I mean when I say the politics of testing there. It's not that I think anyone's trying to kind of trying to do the wrong thing, but if you look at the whole ecosystem, it's good to have an understanding of what's going on there. So I know like, for instance, our research team has been doing uh, quite a bit more looking at some of the folks that we want to make sure we get good scores in and just make sure that we're putting our, our best foot forward. I think Malwarebytes has traditionally, for our products, you know, really focused on our customers and making sure that we've got the product that's going to work best in that environment and not really in the test environment. And, you know, finding that balance is important. You know, the testers would say that they their environments for kind of evaluating things should be like real life. But, you know, everyone's real life is a little different. Kind of back to my original point about you need to understand your environment and what are the controls that you put in place around there. Does that kind of help with that whole uh, politics of testing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it really clarifies, I think, for folks who may not be in this field, who may not be in this industry every day, that there is a difference. There is a difference in everyone's every day, like you said. And there is a difference in configuring what an endpoint protection software catches. You know, me, before I came to Malwarebytes, I'll be perfectly honest, I thought everything sort of ran on a set standard in the sense that, okay, you, you scan a machine, you scan a network, and it finds things or it doesn't, right? And, and that's it. Like, what quote unquote configurations could you even change or, or manipulate? And now at Malwarebytes, I realize it really isn't, it's not everyone has the same setting. It's not that everyone has the same vulnerabilities that they're looking for. It's not that everyone has the same vulnerabilities that they're at a high risk for. And I think that's really important to describe to the audience to, to really, again, highlight that not everyone's every day is the same. And also a real life configuration is not necessarily the same as what another company's testing configuration might be. There might be disagreements. It's, and that's why I think it, it gets to something you were saying, having an outside expert is important. Having an outside expert is, is something you need to rely on because this is a, a more nuanced field than I think some people might, might first understand. I wish that wasn't the case, David. You know, I mean, it's, you know, for folks that have been running security programs like myself and peers I know, we would love to work ourselves out of a job. You know, if we could just get to the point <laughs> where software had no bugs and there were no vulnerabilities or, you know, that people weren't trying to exploit, you know, things, you know, engineers build things to try to do the positive path. You know, they're not thinking about breaking. That's one of the important things about making sure that, you know, your providers have good testing and application security programs. You know, we certainly have one here at Malwarebytes, but that's a, another topic. And then if you talk about those environments, a lot of this is just, you know, do the fundamentals. And the fundamentals, it's kind of boring. It's, you know, brush your teeth. It's, you know, eat your veggies. And, and some of that comes down to things like understanding your environment, making sure that you're keeping things up to date. I mean, Windows has gotten so much better if you're on a Windows platform and Apple as well. And, you know, all the providers, just make sure you've got those updates going. Now, 
you got to test some of them. And then as your, your company gets bigger, you know, you don't want to have like that patch that goes and disrupts your business. But what would be worse is if you have an unpatched exchange server, for instance, that's been in the news here a lot, you know, Microsoft Exchange servers. And luckily yeah. for us, you know, we had moved to not being on-prem exchange at all for any of our emails. So we weren't subject to those vulnerabilities. But having some awareness of that when those come out and then taking action quickly is important. And whether you, you do that by designating someone inside your company who kind of has the lead on that and will keep an eye on some of the different uh, news feeds. The U.S. government CISA has a great set of publications they put out there. There's a bunch of other sources, of course. Read Nowerbyte's blog. We put stuff out there pretty consistently as well and go in depth around some of those other items. But understanding your environment, it kind of goes back to that analogy I was making, which is, you know, if you're... Your front door is broken or, you know, there's a recall on your car. You want to take care of that. If I can stretch the analogy. So you're at your house, front door is open. You have a recall on your car. Should you be worried that, you know, someone's going to fly a drone over your house and, and launch a missile at you? Well, I mean, is that really your, your risk threshold? So, you know, kind of back to think about your person, your personal risk, your business risk. You know, what are the things that you need to do to protect that? And a lot of it does come kind of back to the, the fundamentals. Yeah. And it, I think we're talking around this thing that's that's mentioned a lot, which is the idea of the threat model. And I, I hear that term all the time for people, right? Just what is their individual threat model? And unfortunately, I, I hear that term tossed around a lot and I hear it not explained a lot, which is unfortunate, which is, which is essentially what we've been talking about. Are you at risk of a drone flying overhead and firing a missile? I mean, maybe, but is that the thing that should be taking up the majority of your security practices? Yeah, I mean, I think that, and you know, hey, um, I know this is a little bit selfish and self-serving potentially, but just get some good endpoint protection software on there, you know. And, and of course, we would say Malwarebytes, but you know, in the mm-hmm. end, wh- whatever it is that's gonna that you've got, I mean, and then make sure that you're watching it. Take advantage of those alerts, and if it's kind of too much for your internal team to handle, like we've been talking about before, you know, seek seek some help, you know, and and definitely, you know, make sure that you're using the information that you have from the components that you have in place already. Going back to the reliance on VirusTotal, in our report, we found that younger companies particularly, so those with fewer than five years under their belt, younger companies were far more likely to use VirusTotal to test their endpoint protection tool, 73% of those companies. So again, a, a far and above a majority. So I had two questions there. Why do we think younger companies are doing this? Let's just start with that. Why do we think younger companies are doing this? It's a good question. I was looking through the report and trying to kind of figure out through this. And, you know, one of the things that's always interesting is when you do a survey, it's who's answering the survey and, you know, is this aspirational? It's like, yeah, oh yeah, I keep meaning to do that. Or, you know, is it I'm using the the free version versus the paid versions? I mean, I think one of the reasons that people may have it is it's got great brand recognition and people see that and it's like, hey, at least I can go and do this thing. I mean, I think one of the things to be careful though with a bunch of these systems too is, if you get a file that says this looks like there's a virus in it, be careful with what you're uploading. So if you take something that is a confidential memo that flagged your antivirus, you may want to figure out how to look at that somewhere differently rather than putting that up in VirusTotal. Uh, that's one of the things that has kind of happened more on the, the privacy and confidentiality perspective. You know, people have found information from samples that have been submitted to VirusTotal that have information that maybe someone didn't want to release. So, you know, that's, uh, I know, a little bit of a tangent there, but, you know, a little bit of a caution when you're using VirusTotal, great tool. Yeah. And like I said, there's a number of other ones out there that, that people should be looking at too, but hey, makes sense. Yeah. And I also wanted to 
kind of drill down a little bit more again on this on this younger company response. Are there certain risks that are specific to a younger company in trusting VirusTotal as kind of this like one source of truth? You know, just again, risks specific to a young company instead of a 1,000 employee plus company. Yeah, wow. Well, and that's a, that's a pretty big jump because, you know, is this a, a sole proprietorship? Wow, I guess you're doing everything. And, you know, maybe you've got a, a cousin or a nephew or whatever, and she can come over and do the cybersecurity for you. That might be the best way of doing things. Or I do know several people that work in cybersecurity, but say their parents run a winery. And so, you know, they end up going and setting up the cast register and making sure that it's updated and things like that for them. And, you know, in, in this case, uh, install Malwarebytes and make sure that that's running, you know, regularly as kind of a, a set it and forget it, at least beginning place for, for a lot of folks. So, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you want to make sure you've got the right set of tools and, and that you're applying them well. From moving up the stack, you know, if you have the point where you have some dedicated IT staff, but maybe not security staff, that should be part of the rotation that they have. And again, as I, I talked about before, some of the base hygiene, making sure that you're updating things and that you have some amount of endpoint protection running, or that let's say you're using something like Google's Cloud Mail or Microsoft Office 365, there's a bunch of settings that they have in those now where they can do things like check links in email so that you're less likely to click on a malicious link uh, if something comes in. You know, Configuring that base set of, of kind of tooling is really important, I think, especially for the small, the medium size, and the kind of the growing size businesses. I mean, once you get kind of in the two, three, 400, it kind of depends on what type of company you have. Like, I mean, are most of those folks in a manufacturing setting? Well, in that case, you want to make sure that your manufacturing line is, is set up and, and done well. Are most of those folks uh, white collar workers, quote unquote? You know, today, especially with the pandemic, all those folks are working from home. So you know, how do you make sure that maybe they're teenage son's computer can't infect it. How do you make sure that, you know, that's not a vector to cause an infection or a problem into your business? These are all things to consider. I I think that as you then move up kind of the stack in size, getting some dedicated security staff or likely maybe someone on your staff and then having them with some outside expertise is probably the right way to go. I wanted to wrap it up here back on our main issue today, which is that we've found that there are small to medium-sized businesses that are, they're being proactive. They're like, they're doing, I think they're doing something good. They, they want to test whether their endpoint protection software is good, if it's catching things. But the methods out there, sometimes they have gaps. Sometimes they are more than a, what I'll call a binary, right? It's not just a set it and forget it. It's not just a, let me adopt this one model and run it, and then it's done. I figure it out. Often you need human help. So what I wanted to ask you there is something we've been touching on for the whole show, which is just what's a smart way? You know, how, how can small to medium-sized businesses be proactive in a smart way in this landscape? Great question. And you know, one of the first things there is if you are the owner of that small business or you know have some responsibility for it, go find the person who's responsible for your technology and, and ask them what they're doing. And you know, if they say just virus totally, you say, hey, that's interesting. But I, hey, I heard this podcast and sounds like there's some other things we should be doing too. So I, I would say ask the questions and then work out a plan, right? You know, it's just like anything else. You want to make sure that you have a plan to appropriately address the risks and concerns for your business. John, thank you so much again for being on today's show. David, it's always a pleasure. I hope to be here again, whether it's with uh, some other guests along as well. And for everyone out there, hey, you're doing the good work. Stay safe. 
and we'll talk to you soon. To our listeners at home whose interest we've piqued, you can learn more from the SMB Cybersecurity Trust and Confidence Report 2021 online at www.blog.malwarebytes.com, where we've devoted a blog to our key findings. We'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with cybersecurity and privacy attorney Jake Bernstein about ransomware attacks that turn into data breaches. Thank you. And if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.